Hey everyone, it's Mike Wong, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. Whew, it's been a while. The last podcast that I released came right after episode three of Star Trek Discovery, and we're already up to episode seven. So I guess it means I took about a month off. It doesn't really feel that long. I had a couple of really urgent deadlines having to do with postdoc applications, job applications, basically just thinking about my next step in my career. So I apologize for the slight delay in release of this episode, but I'm pretty sure it was all worth it. Um, Let's see. So what have I been up to in the past month? Well, I went to the DPS meeting in Provo, Utah. Uh, The DPS meeting stands for the Division for Planetary Sciences of the AAS, or the American Astronomical Society. It's the big planetary science meeting of the year. And while I was there, I got to see some old friends like Peter Gao and meet some new ones like Maria Steinbrook, who both joined me for a recording of Strange New Worlds. Both Peter and Maria study hot Jupiters. These are Jupiter-sized planets found around other stars and found orbiting really, really close to their host stars so that they're really, really hot. And it turns out that on hot Jupiters, you can get all sorts of crazy climates and interesting atmospheric phenomena. So Maria studies the climates and chemistry of these hot Jupiters, and Peter studies the clouds that might form on them. And those clouds are made of some pretty interesting things. My research also is about the atmospheres of other worlds. At DPS, I presented a talk about the climate state of early Mars, and I promised to tell you about that work at a later time, but let's go ahead and play the interview that I had with Maria and Peter right now. Today, I am joined by Peter Gao, who has been on the podcast before. He'll be my special co-host for today as an experienced Strange New Worlds podcaster. And we're also joined by a new guest, Maria Steinbrook. And she is from the University of Arizona and gave a great talk in one of the giant exoplanet atmospheres sessions today. So Maria, why don't you go and introduce yourself and who you are and what you study? Hi, I'm Maria Steinrück. Uh, That's the German pronunciation. I'm from Austria. (laughs) Yeah, I totally botched that up, but yes. Okay, you're from Austria. But Steinrück is fine with me. The session chair actually pronounced it right today. (laughs) (laughs) Which is pretty great, yeah. Yeah, I'm a graduate student at the University of Arizona at the Luna Planetary Laboratory, which was actually the first planetary science institute in the world. It was founded in the 60s, mm-hmm. before planetary science was a thing. And I study exoplanets, uh, specifically I study hot Jupiters, which are exoplanets that are like gas giants, like Jupiter, but they are really close uh, to the sun. And basically, I run climate models for these planets. So you are currently at Arizona. You're from Austria originally. Where have you been in between? Right before Arizona, I was in Vienna, where I grew up. And before that, I was at the University of Washington in Seattle for a year. That's how I got into exoplanet research. I've been fascinated by exoplanets before, but that was the first time I actually got a chance to get hands-on experience 
and it was really exciting and that's what eventually brought me here. And I know that you're a Star Trek fan as well because you joined us when we watched the latest episode of Star Trek Discovery, episode 5, titled Choose Your Pain. And we watched that in the Grand Ballroom C here at the convention center. It's the same ballroom that all of the plenary talks are being held in. Um, we kind of just snuck in there Sunday night before anything had started, but the whole AV setup was ready. We kind of just unplugged their laptop and plugged mine into the visual and uh, audio inputs and just watched Star Trek Discovery on the big screen with loud booming speakers. Peter's nodding his head right now. What was that experience like for you, Peter? Oh, the music was gorgeous. I could listen to that theme over and over again on the big screen. It was incredible. Uh, Discovery is made for the big screen, really. The shots are very dynamic, the effects are great, and seeing it in that ballroom was awesome. Yeah, seeing it on the big screen just made me think, wow, I wish this was a movie. I wish I could go to the theater. I mean, like, I would pay a movie ticket to go watch an episode of Discovery every single Sunday. I think that would, that would be such a great experience. Maria, have, have you been keeping up with Star Trek Discovery, and, and how much of Star Trek have you seen? Uh, I've been keeping up with all of Star Trek uh, Discovery, even though it's a challenge, because the last couple of weeks have been really stressful. I am a relatively new Star Trek fan. I think I watched my first episode when I was about 19. So I'm not one of the people who grew up with it, though now I wish I had. <laughs> I'm still catching up on old episodes, but I think Star Trek is pretty awesome. So what have you seen from the older uh, generations of Star Trek? Uh, I watched a couple of the movies. I've watched most of the season most of the episodes of the first season of the original series okay i've watched a lot of voyager episodes voyager is my favorite ah yes <laughs> yes we've had this discussion well, yeah, before we, we thought about this before <laughs> <laughs> yeah for some reason people in our generation really like voyager even people who didn't grow up watching it as a kid like we did peter and i did people of around our age for some reason, we love Voyager, even if you've never seen it before and you're just getting into it and you watch Voyager. Like, Maria, you're getting into it and it's just like, wow, Voyager's so great, right? I wonder what it is. Oh, well, I can't answer it for myself. <laughs> for me personally, a lot of it is related to Captain Janeway being a female captain. And that's something, unfortunately, you still don't see that often in science fiction. And I was like, I watched the first Voyager episode and I was like, wow, this is so awesome. And before that, I did not realize how much representation actually matters. But I, for, for me as a woman, uh, that does add. And also, she's a scientist. Oh, yeah. And she's a physicist. Uh, there's like this one episode where she's, she says this quote, who wanted to muck about in the dirt when you could be studying quantum mechanics? <laughs> <laughs> and that's my favorite Star Trek quote ever. Because <laughs> I can identify with that. You know, it is definitely something that I have noticed. Kirk always turns to Spock for scientific analysis, and Picard will turn to data. Janeway is right in the thick of it, figuring out the science for her officers instead of turning to a science officer. She is a scientist, right? And so she'll come up with technical explanations for the strange phenomena that Voyager is encountering, 
analyze them and try to understand them and come up with really interesting solutions all by herself. And I think she is the only captain that we've seen in Star Trek who actually does that because she is trained as a scientist. Well, Maria, you are a scientist as well, and I know this because I saw you gave a wonderful talk this, uh, this morning at DPS. Um, so your talk was titled, and let me see if I can actually, I wrote it down in my notes. <clears throat> oh, I didn't write, I wrote an abbreviation. Okay, your talk was titled, Something to do with Disequilibrium Chemistry in GCMs. And GCM, as you said, stands for global climate models yes or general circulation model yes one of the two which one does it actually stand both for? both okay <laughs> it's there's a slight difference between the terms but they're basically used synonymously especially in the context of exoplanets okay so let's break this down for somebody who doesn't actually run these types of models or study exoplanets what does a gcm do uh so these exoplanets are so far away that we cannot really look at them and be like, oh, the weather is like this, or uh, the winds on this planet, the cloud distributions, all of that is like this. We will only see one point. And so we need these uh, theoretical models which uh, simulate uh, the, the atmosphere of the planet. It's basically a hydrodynamics code to understand what is going on on these planets. And for our Jupiters, for example, one big topic is that we want to understand why the day and night contrasts are the way they are. Those circulation models also can tell us there's a really strong supersonic jet at the equator of the planet that transports a lot of energy from the day side and the night side. Those planets are tidally locked. That means they have one permanent day side and one permanent night side. And all of these things uh, we only understand because of those uh, circulation models because we have no way to actually go there or, or to just observe them in a telescope with something that shows us more than just a point or for, for the planets I study actually not even a point we just see the total light from the star and the planet and have to disentangle those. So let me see if I understood all of that. So basically, when you look at an exoplanet, you don't actually see the differences between the different parts of the planet because it's just, as you said, one yes. point of light. And so from that, we come up with theoretical models for what the weather is like on the planet, or more accurately, what the climate is like through a model, which is basically a computer code that solves equations for wind how the yes. wind is blowing on a planet and yes. that depends on the temperature of the atmosphere right yes okay and now you, so your your talk was about disequilibrium carbon chemistry in such models for how the winds are flowing and what the temperature is like around this planet so walk me through what does disequilibrium chemistry mean and why is that important oh, okay we're getting a little bit more difficult for our models, we have to make certain assumptions about the atmospheric composition because it uh, affects how, uh, how the sunlight heats the planet and how heat is transported on the planet and also uh, what the spectrum of the planet is that we observe. And an assumption that a lot of models make is equilibrium chemistry. Now, equilibrium chemistry basically means uh, you put a bunch of elements into a box and then you let it sit there infinitely long, and then you see 
how the chemicals uh, react and what elements you get and what which uh, molecules you get, what the ratios of the molecules are to each other. And that is the simplest assumption because we understand that very well. But it, it's pretty unrealistic in hot Jupiters because they have very strong winds. Mm. So if you put, uh, if you would put something in a box, instead of it, it just letting it sit infinitely in, in the on the hot Jupiter, the air would just be transported to the night side, where it has a completely different uh, temperature, and then to the day side again. And there's also vertical mixing, so vertical winds which blow the, the air up, and then molecules with different compositions get mixed and this means that our actual composition of the atmosphere is uh, pretty different from this equilibrium chemistry picture. So it has to do with the fact that the winds are blowing the atmosphere so fast that equilibrium chemistry can't keep up. Yes. And so you get something in a certain place on the planet where that temperature at, the, at that place on the planet should dictate a different equilibrium chemical abundance, but it was just blown really fast from some other place with a different temperature, and so those chemicals in that air parcel is not in equilibrium with its local surroundings because it came from somewhere else. Is yes. that basically right? Yes. Okay, cool. What does your study sort of reveal to us about what we look at when we actually go and observe hot Jupiter? Basically, uh, it reveals that the effects that it has are very different from what we thought, because we thought that at a certain wavelength, uh, the flux would decrease, but in fact, it does not change at all. But then at another wavelength, we see that there are huge changes. And uh, this does not match up with our observations. So the fun thing is we included this in our model, and now we make uh, worse predictions than we did previously, even though we think we're being more accurate. And this actually tells us that there must be something else that we don't understand that's going on in the atmosphere. For example, uh, there could be clouds on the night side, and there are also other hints for clouds on these planets, and we don't consider clouds in, in my model currently. So that tells us that we need to refine our model and also consider other effects to see what's going on. It's always more complicated than, than we thought. And that's exciting as a scientist because it means we get to tackle new problems and come up with new explanations for things. So Peter, you also gave a talk this morning. Unfortunately, I missed that one because I was in a different parallel session. What? Yeah, I was listening, I was listening to all the Planet Nine drama. <laughs> you know. um, we should have somebody on this podcast soon um, about Planet Nine, which was proposed by some researchers at Caltech a possible planet that's larger than Earth but smaller than Neptune orbiting outside of Neptune's orbit and dictating the orbits of smaller what are called Kuiper Belt objects. But that's another story. That's what I was listening to. Peter, what was your talk about? And what, first of all, what was its title? The title was The Exoplanet Cloud Atlas. And what in the world does that mean? So in olden days, uh, a cloud atlas would essentially be a detailed account of different cloud shapes and forms in Earth's atmosphere. What we found recently is that uh, clouds are apparent, and there are a lot of them, in exoplanet atmospheres as well. And they show up in various observations. So the question is, uh, what are they, and how do they interact with the rest of the atmosphere, and so on. 
So what I do is I use a simulation, I use a model with certain material properties of all of these hypothesized cloud materials and in these hot atmospheres you're not looking at water clouds, you're looking at salts, you're looking at sulfide clouds, you're looking at rock clouds, you're looking at iron clouds and all these uh, other fun things. So using this model I essentially simulated the cloudiness of exoplanets across a range of temperatures and gravities in an attempt to match the observed trends uh, that are out there. And what the observed trends show is that it's not simple. Planets don't become clearer as they get hotter. They don't become cloudier as they hotter. Instead, they seem to reach a peak clearness somewhere around 1200 Kelvin. And then they become cloudier, and then they become clearer again. And what I found, uh, at least one, one possible explanation for this, is that there exist transitions between different cloud materials. Now, this is not new, but it has never been tested using actual cloud physics. So, Peter, you said rock clouds? Yes. What does that mean? What? <laughs> rock clouds? Yes. Well, these atmospheres are very hot. They are 1,000 Kelvin, perhaps 2,000 Kelvin. And at those temperatures, what ends up condensing are stuff like silicates, so rocks stuff with magnesium in them and silicon and oxygen. So for reference, Earth is about 300 Kelvin. 300 right? Kelvin, almost in order of magnitude less. So these are thousands of Kelvin, and you're saying that rock, what makes rock here on Earth basically vaporizes, it's in the atmosphere, and then it might condense at some level in the atmosphere, forming rock clouds. Rock clouds. It's, again, it's actually related to what Maria was studying, uh, rock clouds, iron clouds, all of these materials come straight out of equilibrium chemistry. It is energetically favorable to form these materials, although uh, we have as yet never actually confirmed that these clouds are made of such things. That's actually another motivation for my study, because in the future with the launch of the James Webb Space Telescope, we can probe to wavelengths, long wavelengths, where you can actually see spectral signatures of these clouds. But these signatures depend on particle size, and the particle size is controlled by cloud physics. So it's very important that we understand how these clouds actually behave. Very cool. Now, is there room, because I heard that Maria said one of the things she doesn't include in her model is the clouds yet, and you've got a model for specifically clouds, you do, do you think you two should collaborate with one another and maybe combine forces and come up with the next big discovery? Uh, we've definitely been talking before. Like we, we've met before this conference, and I've been talking about clouds. There is uh, a couple of other people that are former members of my research group, and partially current members of, of my research group that also study various things of the clouds. And so we're going to kind of divide the task. Like some people are going to do uh, one thing, and then I am going to focus on probably a simpler model than what Peter does, but do it in 3D and explore a wider parameter space. So we do uh, we do talk a lot, but uh, but also you have to see like to find your gap so you don't step onto each other's toes because you don't want to do exactly the same and waste your energy because there's so much there's so many ways you can tackle clouds and explore them that we just want to get the maximum scientific output, I think. Though certainly going forward, uh, doing things in three dimensions, I think, will be very useful. The temperature structure of an exoplanet, especially those that are that hot, 
is inhomogeneous. It's colder on, for example, the western side of the planet than the eastern side because of the winds that Maria was talking about. As a result, my work, which does everything assuming an averaged planet, uh, averaged longitudinally and latitudinally, is not actually perfectly realistic. So going forward, it'll be good to combine such a 3D GCM with these cloud microphysics models. Always lots of exciting discoveries that lay ahead and potential collaborations as well. So um, just real quick, what has been the highlight of DPS so far for you, besides giving your own brilliant talks? I really liked your talk. Oh, well, I think it was one you. of the best talks I've seen. And I'm not just saying this because he's uh, leading the podcast. <laughs> he does that, though. He does great talks. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I really liked the plenary talks because those are uh, have the time to go more in depth. Uh, there was a couple of interesting talks in a Juno mission. And we have someone in our department who works in a Juno mission and always tells us some snippets. But it was good to see the, the whole picture in the talks. So I really liked that. I really liked today's talk on the plenary talk on Mars and how different mineral compositions that we observe on Mars can give us clues about the past on Mars. Yeah, that was given by Professor Bethany Elman, who is a recently tenured professor of planetary science at Caltech. And we've had some of her students actually on this podcast. Nathan Stein and Cecilia Sanders both work with Bethany and were guests on the podcast. And Elise Cutts was an undergrad who worked with Bethany for the, over the summer and was the co-host for this podcast for the first 12 episodes. Anyhow. So I think one of the major highlights is certainly seeing old friends. But one of the great things about DPS is that it's large in that you can see a lot of interesting science, but it's also small so that there is a bit of a familial feeling. And after going to these conferences for a couple of years now, uh, not only do I have friends certainly that I've left behind at Caltech once I graduated, but also my conference friends that I only ever meet at conferences. So it's always great to talk to them and catch up. Another highlight is, of course, seeing all the brilliant new science and having new ideas from them. I also agree with Maria that the plenaries that just happened today, two about Mars, one about the famous TRAPPIST-1 system were incredible talks. I think Bethany gave a very, very, very nice rundown of the history of Mars. And uh, following that, MAVEN results showing escape of atmosphere from Mars was given very well as well. And the TRAPPIST-1 talk was just gorgeous. It had amazing slides. And of course, the science is great too. All right. So. Um, before we leave, though, uh, I should also ask your opinions on the latest Star Trek Discovery episode, which we watched all together in that giant ballroom. What did you think about episode five, Choose Your Pain? I really liked it. It was a good story. There was lots of things going on, lots of action, but not the kind of, oh, two people firing at each other action, which is I disliked that. <laughs> but, but there were also some really uh, interesting uh, scientific ideas related to this uh, spore. And the tardigrade. Yes. Yeah. So they, they gave us an in universe explanation of how the spore drive works, which is that these spores have 
spread themselves across the universe, and they also have subspace roots or can tap into subspace somehow. And so this creates a subspace link that stretches across the entire universe. I wonder if the spores can explain dark matter. Yeah, that's that was uh, that was an insight that um, Elise also had when I Skyped with her uh, a couple of weeks ago and when we were first introduced to the spores in episode three. Yeah, dark matter, right? So real quickly, wh- what is dark matter? Nobody knows, right? <laughs> yeah, it's uh, this weird thing about the universe where only, what, 4% of all the universe's mass and energy is stuff as we know it. Things that make up the air, the table, ourselves, my computer. About, what, 27%, 25% or so, roughly that is dark matter. Things that we only know about because of their gravitational effect on celestial bodies, um, mainly galaxies and determining their rotation rates and, and so forth. But we don't know what that is because we interact and understand the matter around us through the electromagnetic spectrum. Even touches an electromagnetic interaction between electron clouds and we see things with our eyes, we can take spectra of them as we've spoken about on previous podcasts, but we understand things through the electromagnetic spectrum but can only see or detect the presence of dark matter through gravity. And then the rest of the universe, that rest, that other 70% of it is dark energy, which is driving the expansion of the fabric of space-time, causing the universe to accelerate in its expansion. And that is also very poorly understood. So there's, again, a lot to explore out there. And maybe the spores also <laughs> tap into this dark matter. Um, and dark energy. And dark energy, yes. So another cool scientific tidbit from the episode was lateral gene transfer biology biology right so we need somebody who knows a lot about tardigrades for one because they're super cool things and actually are relevant for space exploration because i think we've shot tardigrades into space on the international space station and experimented with how they cope and indeed they can survive in some pretty harsh conditions so uh, we definitely need to talk about that as well as lateral gene transfer which granted Lieutenant Stamets the ability to act as the tardigrade, right? Actually, the tardigrade itself is capable of lateral gene transfer. Is that right? It interacts with the spores genes, and that's how it's able to be the spores supercomputer. And then by discovering that, Stamets was able to inject himself with some of those, some of that genetic material, and was able to be that supercomputer for discovery in a time of need. Peter, your thoughts on the episode? Yeah, I, I enjoyed it a lot. Um, I think all of the characterizations continue to be excellent. So everybody, or rather, uh, nobody has really acted out of character or anything like that. Uh, everybody have their own uh, attitudes and actions that they take that are very consistent. Uh, I think uh, the introduction of Harvey Mudd, uh, acted, of course, by Dwight Schultz from The Office, uh, was was pretty nice, and I look forward to him hopefully appearing more often on this show in the future. I'm, I also you haven't seen the last of Harvey Fenton. Is that right? I don't even hardcore? Know hardcore Fenton. Fenton. Ma- yeah, Ma- yeah. There you go. yeah. So you know that's clearly foreshadowing. Yeah. And uh, I also enjoy some of the nice Easter eggs that they put in for other Star Trek uh, series, such as the list of notable captains, including all, a bunch of other ones. <laughs> oh, yeah. That we, remember that one? Yes. Yeah. 
Archer and uh, Pike and uh, Decker and Robert April, who Robert is finally, yeah, Robert April, who was uh, shown in the animated series, which is technically not canon, but because he's on Discovery, he is now canon. So the very first captain of the Enterprise is now canon. Uh, overall, I think they they were they treated. Uh, there was a lot of heart involved in treating the tardigrade. I thoroughly enjoyed that. And uh, overall, I just looking forward to the next episode. I think this is a, so far is a great series. I love it. If I had one quip about the episode, it would be the D seven class battle cruiser, which is a class of starship that the Klingons have had in the past, um, and it looked nothing like it usually did on Discovery. It it was this big was green triangular thing. It definitely didn't have that long characteristic neck. It, de- it it just wasn't what we'd seen before. So it was an update, just like the Klingons have all been updated in their aesthetic, and I'm getting used to that now. It was a little shocked to see the updated D7 battlecruiser. Um, it just made me worry a little bit, though, that we are going to maybe encounter a famous Federation ship in the future, or another Constitution-class starship, and it's not going to look like it did in the 60s, and I'm going to have to get used to that, and that's going to be an even harder leap. <laughs> uh, it's, it's okay, Mike. I'm pretty sure that D7 was a pre-refit D7, and by the time the original series rolls around, they realize hmm, having a, a long neck is, is pretty good, and they, they yeah, changed it no to that. Yeah, there's no problems with that. Yeah, it's, you know, 10 years. 10 years is <laughs> a long time. The D7 could totally become... Uh, what we saw yeah yeah all right well thank you so much for joining me for this podcast it was a lot of fun i'm really glad i got to meet you maria and peter of course it's always great to see you likewise and let's do this again sometime so yay live long and prosper peace (laughs) and long life (laughs) i hope you enjoyed my discussion with maria steinruck and peter gao about the atmospheres of hot jupiters and our discussion about Episode 5 of Star Trek Discovery. You know, what Peter said about DPS was right. It really does feel like a planetary science family. Now, this is my, what, fourth time going to DPS, I think? And I still get starstruck. Just sharing the space with legends of the field from all over the United States and the world. People who basically founded planetary science or wrote the textbook on planetary science or who are doing cutting edge research, pushing the fields forward in new directions that just blow my mind. One of those is David Grinspoon, who is not only an acclaimed scientist, but a world renowned science communicator. He's written several books. All of them are excellent. The latest is called Earth in Human Hands, Shaping Our Planet's Future. Now, I've seen David speak and do book readings in the past, but I actually never got to interact with him until this past DPS meeting, where he chaired the session that I spoke in. And it was a thrill to get to meet him for the first time and talk to him about science, but then also get to see him perform at DPS's annual open mic night. And it turns out that David is quite an impressive guitarist and singer. And this just speaks so well to that family that planetary science is. I mean, 
We're all very stressed out people working day and night on science, but we don't forget to let our hair down, so to speak, every once in a while, and enjoy each other's company, laugh with each other, sing with each other, and just recognize the artistry and the humanity that binds us all together. And I'm just so grateful for that aspect of this community and this field. So let's end this podcast with a little bit of David Grinspoon's musical talent. Until next time, see you out there.